Now it's time for Greenwashed on Reality Check Radio. And in a broad and fascinating discussion, Jaspreet Bolparai and Don Nicholson mull over a range of national and international issues, including rural crime, truancy and the ballooning of government departments. They lament the lack of viable political options for New Zealanders, the unreasonable policies around electric vehicles and the silence of mainstream media on international events, such as the farmer protests in the Netherlands and India. So grab a hot drink and enjoy a deep dive into the topic of climate crises and the insidious creep of regulations driving up the cost of farming. And this is Jasprey Boparai, and I'm very happy to have one of our regular contributors here, Don Nicholson, ex-Federated Farmers President. Hi, Don. Good to see you. Hi, Jasprey. It's great to um, have this forum to uh, express my views. I've long waited for something like this. Haven't we all? It has been a good time coming, but here's hoping there's a good time coming. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, uh, all power to the uh, all power to um, um, reality check radio. Long may it last. Absolutely. And uh, come to think of it, there are so many rural platforms, aren't there? You have been yourself done when you were in office, a regular contributor. Then and even after that, to so many different uh, radio channels whatever happened to those well it's it's interesting um yes i was on um, rural radio for 20 odd years and i might say uh i was unreservedly dropped uh a couple of years ago or about 2019 no no reason why um but i assume the sponsors had a say that my opinion wasn't required uh wasn't okay. wasn't uh, wasn't on the f- on the side of politics they wanted it on. So I was terminated. And as recently as six months ago, I was asked to do a regular slot on another channel, another radio station. And uh, when I made mention of um, perhaps you need to look at the genesis of all this stuff that we're fighting, um, I wasn't asked back. And it was going to be a regular uh, chat um, interviews process. So you know. Uh, we live and learn, but I'm I'm happy to be Mr. Independent. Uh, I'm affiliated to no one, and that's how I like it. Absolutely. And for uh, our listeners, those of you who don't know who Don is, uh, I would ask you, Don, to go back into a bit of a history about yourself, please. Yeah, well, look, I've lived in this place called Waimatua since um, I was a kid, and um, it's about 10 minutes from Invercargill. Uh, it's on the Invercargill city boundary now. And uh, I've farmed from 1982 here, sheep and deer and had forestry. And uh, about 2007, um, I decided uh, I needed to scale down slowly uh, out of deer and I went out of sheep. 2007 was the worst year in 50 for sheep and beef farming. And I'd had enough. Uh, I thought I'd given all I had and it was time to call it quits. So by 20, 2015, I'd basically sold all my livestock and now I've leased my farm. So and uh, that all fitted into farmer politics. You know, through the 90s, I got involved in Federated Farmers Southland and I got involved in the local power trust and a few other things. And um, it all culminated, really, being the national president of Federated Farmers, uh, the 27th one of those. Uh, in 2008 uh, till 2011. And, you know, I consider that a big privilege. There's been a lot of big names involved in that in that caper. And uh, 
everyone does their best and I gave it my best shot. But when you leave, you leave. There is no coming back and uh, your voice is over. So um, any medium that I can, yeah, I've always wanted to sort of have another medium to sort of express my views. Uh, it appeared to sort of fall away. Uh, and in the last few years, I've decided I need my, my opinions, hopefully, are valued by others and I want to share them. So great to have this opportunity. Um, one other perhaps claim to fame um, was the 2003 Fight Against Ridiculous Taxes rally around New Zealand, where I and Jerry Eckhoff uh, from ACT at the time were considered the leaders of that. Uh, process it culminated when the tractor went up the steps of parliament and uh, we were fighting against the emissions tax in that year. And it's interesting to note the number of people that are saying how um, I'm still a denialist uh, 20 years on. Well, I'm happy to be in denial if the truth isn't in front of me and the truth is not in front of New Zealand yet. Uh, I'm still fighting it. Couldn't agree more. I am Jaspreet Boparai and uh... I'm a farming wife, a mom. My kids are quite young, five and eight, and my husband and I are contract milking just over a thousand cows in Western Southland, about an hour away from dawn. I'm into a tapri, pretty much as far south as you can go. And I've been in New Zealand since 2009. My husband and I left banking careers in India to go farming in New Zealand. And that's pretty much all we've done for 14 years. In between this time, somewhere I've uh, found a few moments to get uh, my degree in accounting from AC University, worked with a couple of rural accountants. Uh, but as of this time, I am uh, farming, mumming, and I'm also a Southland District Councillor. So I was elected last October, so life has come full circle. And I'm certainly very grateful to be here because, as Don says, I don't think many of us have truly had a platform which stood for free speech, though there have been a few hopefuls that have come to in our New Zealand media space, but somehow, I don't think they've quite lived up to their promises, have they, Don? These... No, and I dare say it's around their sponsors um, having a say over their content, uh, because you sense that you're getting traction on an issue and then it just dies. And a very good example of that recently was um, uh, a Tom Sheehan interview on uh, the country. And it was about why, and we'll talk about this another day perhaps, methane is a non-problem. Uh, physics exposes why. Probably the most pertinent interview I've heard in New Zealand um, in the last 20 years on methane. And it didn't even make interview of the week on that show. And of course, uh, it's been pretty much dismissed of the bin since. So it's our job, and I hope it can be our job, to raise the ire on, well, you know, raise the ante on that again. And you're right, uh, when you look at uh, uh, the, the misinformation and disinformation project that's been uh, funded by us as taxpayers, and you uh, see the game that's going on, you realise uh, why uh, mainstream media is shutting people like you and I down. I, I know. Uh, Professor Sanjana Hatutova, he is in the Disinformation Project, and I think he penned an editorial, was it for the uh, ODT or some other publication down here, where he referred to me and a few others 
as being a cancer attacking the very roots of democracy. And we pay for this garbage. We pay for this garbage. Yeah, well, uh, in this interview, we're going into it uh, earlier than when we expected. But, um, uh, you know, I am observing it too. And it was only when I started to understand uh, how uh, a British company, um, Behavioural Insights, um, run by or led by a guy, David Halpern, um, was uh, infiltrating the mindset of, um, of New Zealand politicians, especially last year uh, in what he called uh, nudge units. Uh, I actually put it all together and thought, yeah, this is crooked as, and uh, we need to expose it. Now, uh, in the last 48 hours, I've, um, I've watched the program uh, done by Operation People on uh, Kate Hanna, and I'm thinking, that's exactly how I see it. It's it's how I see it, and uh, I'm, I'm, I've got no, um, no reason to dislike anyone on the planet, but I dislike um, um, deceptive, distrustful, deceitful people. And we don't need Marxism, Marxism, Marxism sorry, in New Zealand, which is what has been exposed as her agenda. And uh, I'm sorry, uh, the people that will try and vilify me for saying that, uh, bring it on. Absolutely. That, that is uh, quite a skating video. And I think... Uh eerily reminiscent of what you and I have often talked about, you know, the slow creep of Marxism through the institutions about Kate Hanna on Operation mm. People. It's a pretty well done video. And for anyone who's uh, interested and you have 15 minutes, it's not a very long one, but certainly tells you the mindsets of those who are heading these disinformation units, how that Absolutely. works. So the problem we've got, Jasper, is um, you and I, listen to this stuff and perhaps a percentage of New Zealanders who um, aren't captured by the six o'clock news or the mainstream media, how do we make other people become informed? That is the quest. That's what this uh, hopefully will help do, this platform here. And uh, it's our duty to inform. But I look around my neighbourhood. All these people are working like beavers and uh, I doubt any of them uh, have shown any interest to what I and you do because they are working like beavers. Now, I'm not working like a beaver anymore because I don't have to. Um, I'm in my mid-60s and it's time to be met, do it for me. Um, and and I'm just perhaps a bit distressed that most people aren't focused on reality here. And just watching the... Uh, news came through on the internet today uh, that Labour is back in front uh, because we've got a Prime Minister change and a style change. I'm sorry, the substance hasn't changed and we've got a big problem. I mean, just as an aside, and we've certainly branched away from where we sort of got run the sheet as we all supposed to have in these forums, but, you know, for instance, New Zealand citizens uh, in 1999 owed about $10,000 or the Crown owed on each citizen's behalf about 10 grand. It's now 30. And especially since 2017, it's grown from 20 to $30,000 on each of our heads, man, woman, and child. And I would argue that the output for that extra 10 grand has been abysmal. Um, the value proposition from our parliament is disgraceful. 
and productivity. The dead weight loss is just awful. Just absolute shambles of productivity. We are hiring bureaucrats by the dozen and very expensive bureaucrats at that. If we look at the farming space, how many organizations, do good organizations are there right now? Uh, well, even if you look at some of our levy funded bodies, I look at Dairy NZ, and they pay something like uh, 30 million as a 28, 29 million annually in uh, wages. We have catchments group, we have discussion groups, we have support, rural support trust, and I'm not saying that they are not needed, but the point is the little help that is given if there is a drought declared or something absolutely pales in comparison to what these bureaucrats are given. You know, as I refer to them often, shiny suits and brand new youths driving around the countryside. And there is the farmers, as you speak about country people, beavering away. And uh, well, what gives? What gives, all right. I mean, there's a plethora of, of little organisations starting up with funding that's um, either from your local rates, your local or, or your government taxes. Um, and they all seem to find a way in uh, into your business. Uh, they're saying they're going to do stuff that's going to add value uh, to your business. You're, you're going to be much better off for it. But I'm sorry. Um, capturing the value that they supposedly add is very difficult. And in fact, finding the value they add is very difficult. Of course, um, you know, everyone wants to have um, safe food production uh, and we want to have good biosecurity and good animal welfare, all those things. But I dare say the sustainability buzzword is so, uh, um, it, it means a massive amount of different things to different people and you cannot define it, but everyone hooks onto the sustainability bandwagon, uh, you know, that I know you've done a lot of work on it's uh, Genesis out of the United Nations and, and the like. Um, and, and interesting, I remember getting harangued and harassed by an economist in New Zealand when I said um, New Zealand farmers' productivity was significantly better than any other sector of the economy, and productivity is basically doing more with less. And uh, once we got rid of protectionism in the 80s, that's what we did. And, uh, of course, um, for the period from 1978 to 2008, as some figures I have, the productivity uh, has grown... Uh, on average in, in, in the sector was 3.4% per annum, three times um, the 1.1% for the wider economy. And I would say that gap could even be worse now um, with the expansion of government to the level we have and to the inefficient level we have. I mean, I've I read a thing today, um, and sorry, I'll just grab this note because I need to get it right. Um, truancy in schools, it's going through the roof. Um, supposedly, we've got a uh, uh, Education and Training Act uh, passed in 2020 that's supposed to be acknowledging and assessing all this stuff, but it broke 14% last year. And here's the rub. Here's the rub for me. The ministry says it has increased the number of organisations contracted to deal with truancy from 45 to 79. Uh, Unbelievable. Uh, and this is an, an Act document, an Act press release of yesterday revealed in November, it barely keeps track of what they're doing. Despite allocating 16.5 million to attendance services last year, the ministry didn't know how many attendance officers there were and didn't receive any truancy data from the 108 schools in term two. And that, that's despite the Ministry of Education exploding in size. 
Full-time equivalents are up 55.3% since 2017, and it still can't get kids to show up at school. In fact, it's being rewarded for its failures by being given more money and more staff. And that is symptomatic of the system we're in, the wastefulness of government and how you, how you restrain that. I'm not sure because we've got people being uh, on the drug of government effectively. And, we uh, saw very similar statistics come from Ministry of Environment earlier this month when the chief executive has uh, is moving on and she's written in her uh, post which is shared on ministry of environment's facebook page that the thing i'm most proud of is that the organization's culture has not changed whereas i think as she mentioned last five years the employee numbers have gone on gone up from 320 to 1200 a four times increase in workforce is nothing to be proud of. No, and I can't, I can't define the output um, other than uh, what it's doing for downtown Wellington uh, or, you know, and the like. I mean, when I first went to Wellington in 1998, it was dead as, as they say, dead as a mackerel um, on the main street. Uh, there was just no one there. And that was after the reforms of the 80s still flowing through and um, the end of the national government just before Helen Clark came to power. But by the time I left in 2011, it was booming. Goodness knows what it's doing now. It must be on steroids uh, because, uh, you know, if I wanted to say a Trumpian thing, um, I'd say let's build a wall and let's isolate Wellington and let's get on with it. Uh, <laughs> dealing with things the way we need it. I mean, the policing statistics that I um, learned about today for rural New Zealand uh, staggered me. Um, and I'll just quickly get those. It was, there's 165 rural police uh, on 108 stations um, covering an area of 50% of New Zealand. Now, I feel for those policemen. They can't do their job. They can't get to a job in an hour. They can't get to a tackery as quickly. You know, you used to have a policeman. I'm not sure you still do. We have just actually after the machete attack done on the fire brigade during the training last month, we have got a policeman back. Uh, fantastic. Because I, I am a bit overseeing so many, so many police, uh, traffic management police on the road. Um, when I know that small communities can't get uh, security policing um, when they need it. and I so know for a fact that you yourself, you've been robbed once in the last year and then another attempt recently. Whatever happened to that, Don? First, I've lived here my whole life, 65, 66 years, and it was the first time we'd had an invasion um, in our property, and it was just before daylight in February 2022. Uh, clearly lots of people were involved. They came in through um, side paddocks rather than through the front gate. Um, I would imagine they use Google Maps or drones to uh, case the place. Um, and I should add here, if you hear that noise, that's a fire brigade siren that's just gone on into a top roof. Oh, gee. I, I, yeah, yeah good, good on the local fire brigade. They do a fantastic job. And they do all around the country, um, amazingly uh, active and good on all those people that give their time. 
So going back to that uh, burglary, uh, clearly they took about $50,000 worth of, if they'd been new, assets from me, um, left a trail. The police did their best. Um, I was one of about 30 burglaries by the same group. Uh, the guy ended up in court and, sorry, only one person ended up in court because he wouldn't grass on his mates. And uh, he got three years, 10 months for a quarter of a million dollars worth minimum of um, assets stolen. He got, there was no reparation awarded. He'll be out by this Christmas. Um, and so to me, it's a smack in the face. I mean, to me, he should have, if there was 10 accomplices and he wouldn't name them, he should have got 10 times the sentence. That's my view. Um, and again, this recently we were, we had a um, insane sort of thing, daylight, Security cameras in my place now, I have to say, lots of them. And um, and I just on daylight got this uh, camera alert. And sure enough, there was people trying to find um, fuel on my property. Turns out both of them are seriously pee-addled um, people, dairy workers in the neighbourhood. And um, I tracked them down with my, uh, my, my intel and um, the police are dealing with them. So, But, you know, the problem is... If you're only going to get a smack on the hand for, for taking $50,000 worth of stuff and all your mates get off the hook, where's our, where's our judiciary? I mean, what, what are the judges doing to us? Uh, there's something lacking there. But I, I feel for anyone that's had that uh, home invasion or property invasion, um, what is it about this country where the respect for the property of the individual is, is lost? I mean, it used to be um, you gave respect to fellow man's property, and and uh, it just seems to be diminishing that respect. And of course, you know, I, I look at a lot of media, and it's not surprising. We're trying to alter the whole country's um, legal system, effectively, with this separate and new interpretation of a, a treaty. Um, what you were I, talking about, the respect for property, I'll talk about that, that people don't have. It's almost symptomatic of a greater issue, isn't it? Our government doesn't seem to have any respect for individual property rights either. Does well, it? I was considered Mr. Property Rights uh, when I was at Feds, and um, I have been a bit mystified to understand why that discussion hasn't carried on to the level that I once had it at. Uh, but I'm big on um, the property rights uh, of the individual and and how that the individual should not uh, also, on the other hand, uh, affect his neighbour. So you've got to be mindful of how your actions and, for instance, in farming, you shouldn't have any negative effect on your neighbouring property. But all this seems to, it's this what's mine, what's yours can be mine syndrome seems to be uh, rife in this country and uh, it's almost encouraged by this governance system we have and the media. Um, and I have to say the separatism that's developing in this country and the, the nasty diatribe that's been going with it um, is just awful. Seriously. I will. I can attest to that. I landed on these shores uh, just over 14 years ago. And to, uh, as an outsider at that point, the place seemed pretty egalitarian, right? Everything has its warts and all. But on the whole, things seem to be going all right. And yet, over the last three to four years, more and more, more and more, I seem to get a sense of the separatism that our Indian politicians thrived on. 
every election cycle pit different religions against each other has just followed me here. It's morphed from religion, Hindus and Muslims and Sikhs to ethnicities. And yet, where would this stop? I imagine we have set up an entire uh, bureaucracy, a separate, separate Maori healthcare system. What is the threshold to avail of the services? That's not been defined. And is that wrong to ask that? How much uh, of a particular ethnicity of my you know, genetic makeup do I need to be able to avail the services? It's, it's completely wrong. Um, I don't care uh, what or how um, Maori define, uh, define it. It is wrong if we're all contributing as taxpayers that we have a separate Maori health system. Completely wrong. And now, just last week, Mr. Rob Campbell was dismissed for sort of expressing his personal views on social media. I'm not quite sure what his personal view was on this issue, but he has been um, directed to uh, um, work towards this separate Maori health system. Did he agree with that? I don't know. The problem is we didn't need it, never will. It's wrong. It's fun. You know, I don't want to uh, uh, have my uh, taxpayer's dollar having some sort of um, uh, apartheid attached to it. Uh, expense attached to it. It's just wrong. And is the outcome going to be any better for the Maori? Well, it shouldn't be. It absolutely shouldn't be. Um, and it wasn't poor before. Well, if it wasn't right, for it would, should have been for all New Zealanders. And I would argue that, and I always have argued, if putting more money in government departments like health and education and policing was the answer, then why hasn't it been? Because clearly there's been a lot more money in every vote, uh, every budget, every year um, that goes into these departments and ministries. But we're always told the outcomes are no better. Everything's no good, regardless of population growth uh, and inflation. So having separatism, um, I mean, we've, we're even starting to, to acknowledge um, Maori science as it, it's got more, more priority than, than what you would argue is standard western type science because colonialists were all bad of course um we we didn't bring the right knowledge to new zealand everything has got worse since colonialists came i mean i despise being called a colonialist i just despise it i don't know where it all comes from. i probably look at it also from another view that for any any government the ultimate nightmare would be a unified population wouldn't it and that's this divide and rule, because I've, I've seen this in India. I, I often go back to that. You probably don't think of it this way. But a united population would be the ultimate nightmare. So what can we do to drive a wedge in? And that, I think, has been a key, key direction that the narrative has been pushed by this media over the last few years. Polarize everything, everyone. Maori against non-Maori, rural against urban, employers against employees, vaccinated against unvaccinated. Hundred percent right, Jesper. Hundred uh, percent right. Uh, it's 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 part of the um, agenda. I'll never forget. Uh, was it twenty twenty where the prime minister got on stage and started to espouse uh, almost uh, words straight out of um, Clash Schwab's. Um, playbook uh, like build back better and be kind be 
be uh, be nice, be just, and we'll have a just transition and build, yeah, all of the stuff. It all sounded so great to the unwashed um, or the uneducated, sorry, the people that are less educated on the real agendas. Um, but it's hollow. The whole lot has been hollow. But I noticed that narrative is in every rural newspaper that I've read today. Every rural newspaper has talked about being nice and kind and, yeah, look out for your numbers. We did all that before. We didn't need exactly. to be told to do it. And now we, we have... don't need the government looking after our well-being. God almighty, we are adults here. Yes. And, and look, I remember going through uh, storms uh, in Southland and Canterbury, snowstorms and different floods around, and you, you had to do media on it. And you knew that the locals were going to take control the best they could because if you wait for government, you're going to be waiting some time. And government doesn't actually put the um, shovel in the ground or, or pick up the dead animals or anything. Um, it's, it's funny how um, they like to think their photo opportunity is really important. And some farmers <laughs> think it's really important as well. Um, I happen to... to um, to sort of disagree that photo opportunities uh, are a big turnoff uh, for hardworking people trying to get through the worst of the worst. And I mean, look, going on to what's happened in Hawke's Bay and around the North Island recently is just hellish. Um, I, I, um, you know, I, I'm not emotional about it, but I could get emotional about it if I was in that area um, with some of those people who are putting their heart and soul into um recovering from a massive loss and I don't know how some of them ever recover from it but platitudes from government and local government don't work you need um you actually need resources and uh the biggest thing that's happening right now is people have some people have lost 100 percent of their income they've got to recover that they need bankability they need to be uh if you know, gosh, I hope they were insured um a lots won't be there are so many things that have to happen to help these people recover. Most of it will be driven by the individual. Um, and so the last thing they need is platitudes from outsiders. Actually, in that, at this point, they're not even offering much by the way of platitudes. It seems to be that this cyclone has been plucked and is now being used to push a climate agenda, climate crisis uh, narrative completely. I saw the other day on one of these uh, breakfast channels talk about the two very sadly deceased uh, Muruvai firefighters being referred to as climate crisis deaths. Yeah, well, that's obscene. It's obscene. And, um, uh, you know, before Christmas, we were aware that the even the IPCC reduced its ambition in terms of its um, concern about temperature rise, they, they halve what their expectation is for temperature rise in the next uh, 100 years or 80 years. Hardly mentioned in New Zealand media, not in mainstream media, that's for sure. And uh, today it came across my desk, a article from 2022, where um, if you go back pre-industrialization and analyze uh, um, cyclones and hurricanes effectively, um, they are this, this uh, professional had assessed that we are now 13% less 
in terms of um, extreme weather events and, and like cyclones and hurricanes. Now, that's not the narrative you get from any no. media in New Zealand. Uh, um, 13% less. I mean, we have these weather events. Climate is about trends. And actually, I'll be called a denier again. Um, welcome mm-hmm. to my life. Um, but it's my um, information that, that's commonly available. There has been no warming in the last eight and a half years in the world on average. Now, and the other thing is people all focus on CO2. Um, it, it's all a misnomer. There is no, look, there has been $100,000 prizes offered for anyone to prove um, that CO2 is, is causing um, significant global warming. It's funny how no one takes up that offer to, to win that prize. I almost uh, thought that the national MP, Maureen Poo, was about to take up that offer. And then it seems within a span of three hours this month, she was re-educated by Christopher Luxon, the Nats, who the vast majority of New Zealand seem to think will come and sort everything out. And by evening, she was uh, well up with the agenda of the climate crisis. I found that amazing. And yet it has happened. Well, she, she's obviously got caught up in the Luxon gulag. I mean, I, I just found it obscene that uh, he uh, put her under the bus as quickly as he did uh, because he couldn't, he's not well enough equipped to understand what I understand. That Or if perhaps he he's not allowed to understand. Ah. Well, you are, I mean, there's no one as blind, as my grandma would say, as those who refuse to see. Well, true, but he did also come from um, one of the most virtuous companies in New Zealand, one of the first to jump on the uh, climate alarms and bandwagon, and one of the first to go and buy um, blocks of, or, you know, invest in tree, um, tree blocks for sequestration of carbon dioxide. I mean, yeah, that's about as virtuous, virtuous as, as you can get. Um, to me, uh, society should all have been about efficiency. Um, that's Do you not- get annoyed? I have recently booked a domestic flight in New Zealand. It's in New Zealand. And each time when it comes, do you want to purchase this much of offsets for your emissions? My answer is every time, hell no. But I wonder how many go along. I would really like to see some data on that, that how many of the flights booked to New Zealanders go along with buying few of those oh, uh, credits to offset emissions. I imagine there's a lot on the um, Wellington to Auckland or Wellington to Christchurch flights uh, who are going to Wellington for the day. I imagine there's a lot tick the box because probably they're not paying for it. Their company will be paying for it or or, um, or yeah. the government will be paying for it. Um, the gov- you know, your taxes will be paying for it. It's very easy to tick the box if you're not paying for something. Um, and sadly, there's a lot of that happening. So... Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit surprised about Maureen Pugh. I'm hoping, um, I'm hoping that others in that party will rise to the challenge of the truth, but I'm not hopeful. When I heard that the, uh, their ag spokesman or shadow minister for, for primary industry, Muller, was wanting to do a bipartisan approach with um, the Greens, um, it really bothers me because... Um, neither of them are willing to accept there's a different narrative which shows that, for instance, um, the 
walling potential from methane and nitrous oxide, so farming sort of output in terms of greenhouse gas, is so insignificant, it can't be 48% of the national inventory. It just can't <laughs> be. And, uh, and if they're going, they're swallowing that and putting farming under the bus, along with a lot of farmer levy bodies putting us under the bus, um, uh, under, under some false premise. So I need these guys to wake up. And if they don't, there needs to be another political party that's willing to do it. Is it going to be ACT or is it going to be an amalgamation of all the minor parties that all say they need, they see the issues, but a lot of nonsense issues? I don't know. Honestly, at this point, there's not many who are actually going to speak up on this or who are actually at this point brave enough to speak up on this. But coming to the rural sector, it almost seems as if New Zealand has this whole attitude of we are going to go where angels fear to tread and be the world first in taxing our own selves. Now, for someone who comes from India, 1.4 billion people, Delhi alone is 15 million, thrice the size of the New Zealand population. Our teaspoon of emissions in the world are negligible yet. And and I, I'll never just point out about negligible. I will be able in further episodes, Dawn and I will go into the science of nitrous oxide and methane and why they are non-events. But for now, let's just compare New Zealand to New Delhi, <laughs> right? Thrice the population. No one cares a hoot because out there in India, as incidentally, Andrew Hogarth said to Don in the Invercargill uh, Feds meeting that the Indian representative uh, on the International Ag Association said that sustainability is a full belly. I think that's that was probably the best definition I found that day. <laughs> Cutting off your nose to spite your face. No. And I have a feeling that's where New Zealand is going to head to. Um, New Zealanders demand a full belly. We've got this net zero 2050 aspiration that has never been costed to every man, woman and child in this country. And yet we know it's going to be significant. And I dare say we know that it's going to be a welfare system that will cover it for those who can't afford it. But it's a crock and it's almost criminal that we're going down this track. Um, in fact, there are plenty of scientists in the world and engineers and you know, who, who, would, who would argue the same thing, that New Zealand is um, uh, on this virtuous track to its own demise. You know, the nonsense that we're going to get billions more for our produce because we're going to have these new credentials, uh, all driven by people that don't own anything or have anything to sell. They just have their own noise and they're paid by the farmer's money, actually, in a lot of cases. Um, you know, exporting our food is a good thing. It's what we do. Um, and and you know, it shows that we do it even better now that uh, tourism took the hiding in 2021 onward because um, our export earnings are up to 81% of, of the nation's exports from 55% 10 years ago. And so... Yeah, we're important, but all these reef fish telling us how to operate all the time 
um, and knowing that they're contributing only, they're not doing the investment contribution. They're not doing the investment. They're not taking the risk. Um, the idea just clipping on to get. the machine. And we let them do it at our peril. We should have safe and trusted food for export. That's it. Um, I don't care what a, a company does in terms of its sustain, what perceived sustainability marketing, but why they all hunt as a pack, um, milk, meat, and others uh, hunt in the sustainability pack. They all sort of like the, there must be a funding machine over here somewhere that gives them some some um, some funding to to help do it. But it's like we want to be all together and. Uh, be happy in the same wavelength. Why can't we have differentiation? Why can't we have individuality? Why can't we have um, self-determination? Why do these co-ops all seem to think that we've got to be um, hunting as a pack and, and signing up to net, tw net uh, 0 2050? They're weak, they're gutless, and they need to actually realise that they're wasting a lot of our money and our energy and Actually, there's nothing just or kind about it. There is nothing kind about it. The words kind and sustainable have been destroyed for me in the past few years, completely <laughs> destroyed. And, um, you know, this narrative about how we are in a very major climate crisis and something needs to be done by it is being driven right from schools on to every single organization. The school strike for climate marches this weekend uh, earlier in february the sorry <laughs> excuse me these uh, school strike for climate marches these were i don't know i looked at them with a sense of do these kids know what they are doing what does climate justice even mean yes and um you know, I have grandchildren and I'm worried what they're um, learning. Even at preschool, I'm worried what they're learning. Um, and, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I watched, I, I, I cautiously watched television last week and um, I think it was on one of the main channels, there was a young lady crying, a young teenager, or maybe even been a, a, a younger student crying that the, you know, basically the world's ending. How dare parents scare our children like that? How dare our teachers and our politicians allow that to continue? Um, you know, how dare you as Greta Thunberg's, um, you know, key line, well, I, you know, I'd turn it the other way. How dare these other people allow this mind um, control and, and brainwashing to continue? Um, clearly, uh, when you look back, though, 1967, I really thought I was going to fry overnight from neuro testing. I mean, I had that fear put into me by a school teacher. So I understand how it happens. Um, so I dare say it's our, um, our mission to try and make sure parents don't get frightened and let their children get frightened by this nonsense. But then we um, have some really kind green politicians like uh, Ricardo Mendez, who's been talking all about tips to solve eco-anxiety. So, you know. You create the problem and then come along in and be the saviour. Well, the playbook for all this has well and truly been written by, by many authors. And I was, I'm not that well read, but the few bits I do read clearly show me that um, 
this is not a new playbook. But it's not one that I can subscribe to because it doesn't work. It makes life miserable for people. And, you know, a standard line, um, oh, capitalism uh, makes the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Well, guess what? Where are the most billionaires in the world? They're in communist China. And uh, don't tell me that's a uh, really nice place to have freedom and um, enterprise. So if that's what you want, if that's what you want, Marxism, communism, socialism, yeah, you'll be a, there'll be billionaire elites. But the, the rank and file, as we call them, including us, will be a lot poorer. So um, I'm, I'm for capitalism, but not crony capitalism. Not crony capitalism, completely. And, you know, so much New Zealanders have not been allowed to discuss openly in the last few years, in the last couple of years, especially since the whole uh, COVID thing took center stage in our lives. And I remember uh, calling the host of one of these free speech platforms and uh, the challenge he had thrown the gauntlet earlier this summer was that all these conspiracy theorists who keep talking about United Nations need to prove to me that it has any influence on New Zealand. So I had fed the kids lunch and I had a spare moment. So I called and my call was put through. So this gentleman goes on. And I don't know what it is about some of these radio hosts. They ask you to call in. And the moment you start talking, they fall in love with the sound of their own voice and continue to talk all over you. But in any case, so he says, uh, so you want to tell me that the United Nations has some influence on domestic New Zealand policy. I said, oh yes. If you look at any government document, council documents, every single thing, every single document will have a reference to IPCC. For those who don't know, this is the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And the, all of them make references to IPCC and how much warming we are going to have. And Don had referred to it a bit earlier that one of their uh, more doomsday sort of models, which is called RCP 8.5, has now been debunked. UN has itself accepted that that sort of heating won't happen. And we've come down to a more moderate one, but hasn't been Uh, that hasn't been publicly spoken about. So this guy, no, 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 there's nothing to do with this. And IPCC is all voluntary and all these countries agreed. I said, right. Okay. He says, what's wrong with the United Nations? I said, right. You don't want to talk about this. Let's talk about their track record in Africa and African agriculture specifically. The next I heard was a beep, beep, beep. The gentleman hung up on me. I don't know what to take that as, but uh, the UN has absolutely, with its policies of uh, rejuvenating African agriculture, has completely decimated it systematically over the last 75 years. And here we are today, emulating that organization in every aspect of our lives in New Zealand. And this agenda specifically ramped up around 2019, Jacinda Ardern, and I must appreciate her for that, Don. She has been very, very transparent. She spoke at the uh, United Nations 
goalkeepers conference with the Bill and Melinda Gates hosting it in New York. And uh, Muriel Newman from Act Exact, she had written a column on this. And she said that New Zealand, under my government, will be the first country in the world to put the United Nations SDGs into its, you know, very legislative framework. And yet we have these radio jocks denying it. How stupid yeah. do they think we are? Well, they clearly don't read as much as, as you and I have. I mean, most documents I read, um, but I have to I have to say I was naive. I saw all this reference to uh, UN um, sort of sustainable development goals and, and things like that when I was reading policy documents. Oh, nothing to see here. Um, just sort of something innocuous, but I never analyze it in my brain. I you know, have too much going on. Um, and to think that an unelected group of 190 nations uh, or thereabouts, sorry, a group of 198 na nations have um, their unelected officials going there and making and directing what should be policy back home um, and then getting it back into policy back home without the society really knowing is, um, well, what is it? It means that our government is sort of emasculated, uh, but, but we've allowed it to happen. And, you know, when I talked about getting gassed from um, a radio show six months ago, that's what it was about. I asked him to go and find the genesis of all the stuff I was talking about. He didn't want to do it, just didn't want to do it. Because I think they know, Jasper, that, and I don't want to sound arrogant here, but you are going to be found very accurate on this issue. And the rest of us are going to um, sort of feel vindicated that we've challenged it. Um, so much so that uh, these people, they bury themselves in, in the denial in the end. They can't face saying, sorry, I got it wrong. And I think that's what they're going to have to say. Because I look, I'm. If I get something wrong tonight in this discussion, um, I will admit I was wrong. I don't have any any issue with being wrong. Um, I just want the truth to be everywhere. And uh, they don't realize how much I would love to be wrong about all of this. Mm. Completely wrong all about it. I am in the sticks in Western Southland and just around us, three farms, all in about a five-kilometer radius, as the crow flies, have been sold to 100% overseas uh, interest. Two of them I know are Malaysian uh, companies. The third I do not. I could probably find it if I look on the Overseas Investment Office uh, website because every quarter they give a list of the decisions they've done. They've gone into pines. I thought we were facing food shortages, Don. <laughs> yeah, well... People, when they see um, see the carrot dangled in front of them and see a whole lot of capital growth out of um, something as easy as growing a pine tree, um, they're not going to worry about food production. I mean, they don't care if you have to eat um, pine needles or have pine soup um, as long as they're making currency out of it, and that's what they'll be doing. Uh, sadly, um, there's many regions in New Zealand that can show why this isn't good for a, um, a region. And... Um, even around Tolaga Bay in the East Cape last year, there was an expose on, on Sunday, a TV1 program that showed that forestry, as much as the forestry um, 
companies are saying how it brings full employment and all the rest of it. It's, it's better than sheep and beef farming because there's more people involved. That doesn't seem to be the case. Um, admittedly, these people are mobile workers, but little towns on the East Coast are um, falling apart. In fact, they're, they're now ghost towns. Yeah. And then you then you understand what happens, for instance, in, in our region, in the Clutha, our vet practice. Um, it's in the local papers that 24 farms have been converted partially or fully to trees recently, creating a loss of 111,000 stock units and a $432,000 reduction in spending in the vet club practice. Extrapolated out, that means 8.8 .8 million to the local economy of Balclutha and all the Clutha economy. Now, 110,000 stock units is one heck of a lot of stock units. That's uh, just to help your listeners, that's effectively over 100,000 sheep. Um, that's, that's a significant volume. But see, it's decimating those small communities. And that's what this carbon farming, and it's stupid to call it that, but they are farming the legislation. Um, so I suppose that's that's how you could explain it. But it's wrong. It's and it's it's based on a fallacious argument about global warming. And so it's legislated climate change given privilege to a whole bunch of investors who my biggest wish would be that the whole thing falls over and there's no compensation and these people lose their shirt. That's my hope. Uh, because I've been around this for 20 years and I just can't stand uh, people who use legislation to uh, advance themselves and ingratiate themselves. And it's even worse when they um, see the opportunity from offshore and see that. I, I was uh, reading an article today. It is by William Briggs. And uh, this gentleman, he has... Uh, a PhD from Cornell. He also has a degree in atmospheric physics. And he's written an article and very tongue in cheek, how to guarantee there will be a perpetual climate emergency. And uh, he says pretty much the, in a nutshell, what he says is start appointing, begin from appointing a minister for climate change and creating ministries and adding a few civil servants and putting the fear of climate Armageddon in the kids. And he says, that is it. The tax will start going that way for nothing to show for it. And for uh, anyone who's keen to read this one, we will put this in the show notes so you can have a read of this. But yeah, and that's what we've done. We've got so many, so many on the climate gravy train and now they are infiltrating really small, small catchment groups down here. And I believe up and down the country now. Oh, that it will be nationwide, no doubt. Um, yes, those small catchment groups and little groups um, that have found an, an opportunity to talk about carbon-free such and such an area, they will be gravitating to this honeypot. Um, and there will be a whole bunch of uh, officialdom sort of saying, yes, we can help. Um, yeah, because they've got someone else's money. Uh, it's it's weird. I love that article, by the way, by William. Br I think it's William Briggs. Uh, but it's in, it made me think of how um, 
and it's perhaps before your time, well, it is well before your time, Jasper comes <laughs> Humphrey, and yes, Minister, uh, the British comedy would have dealt with it um, because they would have done an amazing take on this whole concept. It would be made for British comedy. <laughs> I am getting up there, Don. I have uh, watched that one. Yes, Minister, might have been reruns, but I have, I have watched those. <laughs> So, yeah, look, it's it's certainly a gravy train and um, it's left the station a long time ago and we just need to, to rein it in. Um, you know, there's lots of other things going on around it. For instance, one thing that really bugs me to this day, and, you know, I've been involved in the electricity sector, just, just resigned um, recently from seven years as a director in the electricity sector. You know, I resigned. Um, my position was made untenable, so I pulled out. But... Um, you know, the electricity sector is sort of um, salivating at the prospect of all this electric uh, electrification of the country. And um, I have no issue with it if it was efficiently um, desired. Yeah. But I see where that even Fonterra is looking at um, heat pump um, uh, boilers now to make their, uh, to perhaps uh, discard their coal-fired boilers. Well, that's all fine and dandy. I hope it's um, economically efficient and uh, the transition that's, is fine. That's huh. all we want, economically efficient, yes. not ill-gotten gains, you know, fleecing the taxpayer for nothing. So so here's the rub on all of that. You know, I was, there's a few years ago, I could have bought an electric car. I thought they seem pretty good. And, you know, the speed <laughs> and from, from zero to, to 100 k's an hour is like lightning. Yeah, I need one of those. Well, uh, I'm pleased I don't have one um, uh, because I couldn't justify not paying road user charges. Access to the roads without paying to me is an anathema. You just can't have this continuum. But not only that, we decided to tax uh, farm utes and trading utes to give subsidy to EVs. Um, it's wrong. We pay 7.6 cents to run a, a trades vehicle on the road, under three and a half ton diesel road user charges. The petrol tax that um, mums and dads are paying in their car to drive is around a dollar a litre, and probably a bit more, including GST and, and, and emissions charges. And yet EVs, and there's lots of them on the road now, are getting a free ride. And I would even argue that cyclists are getting a free ride because they're getting their cycleways um, put up for no cost. Yeah, they may be out of general taxation getting some of that funded, but it's wrong that we continue in 2023 to not fully charge an EV. Sorry, that's a bit of a pun, charge an EV um, for <laughs> access to the roading network. Their, their wear and tear on the roading network is every bit as much as any other vehicle but they get a free ride. It's just wrong. I mean, I know overseas, I, when I was in um, San Francisco a few years ago, they got access to, to the fast lane sort of thing, and um, I think they could get through the tolls um, at lesser or zero cost. Uh, just this sort of uh, economic aberration, they just need to stop. They're wrong, and they create the wrong incentives. So they um, will, I think, ultimately, there's, you know, costs are being put up for charging. Many of those free chargers are not free initially. So I think there will be a great leveling. But till oh. then, the polarization helps. 
That's right. Um, there will be a great levelling. Yes, there will be lots of charging stations and the cost of them should come down over time. But yeah, if you're in a high use, high zone area and you need charged, I mean, nothing worse than being uh, out, outside a cafe with one charger and there's 50 cars lined up to get charged. It's not going to be fun. There is one charger about 500 metres down the road from me outside a Tuatapri cafe. I have not really seen many vehicles being charged there in the two years that's been here. Mm. Well, I don't. Southland's getting more, and, and you go to Queenstown, and there is a lot of EVs. You see a lot of them on the road, and um, yeah, I've, I've, I'm not against EVs. I just think um, they need to pay their way like anybody else, and they've had their time. They've had years to make this adjustment, and governments seem to be avoiding um, the hard, the hard. Um, well, the hard landing that EV owners are going to get. It is deliberately skewing the incentives, no different than it was in bringing this entire wall of pine trees that's now surrounding our place out here. 2017, the New Zealand government bought in this legislation. They called this the special forestry test. And what was special about it, you may ask? It did away with the need for an overseas investor who was going to buy, you know, farmland, pastoral land in New Zealand to convert into pines mostly, because they are the fastest growing. It did away with the need for them to prove that there is an economic benefit to New Zealand. And uh, lo and behold, if I look uh, at, at any given time at the overseas investment office decisions, nearly 90% of the conversions till today, since 2017, happen under the special forestry test. They were essentially given a red carpet welcome into New Zealand to come and destroy this place. Now, I am not against pines. They said it would be the right tree in the right place, yeah. not blanket pines. They clearly don't know um, much. People in you know, we're practical people. We know about stuff. We see it around us. But if you're in the bubble of a, um, a bureaucratic city, you're not going to see the reality down on the farm. You're just not. Uh, some people can, but most of them can't. Um, they don't understand that the derivation of their paycheck is coming from the provinces, really. The harvest of yeah. the environment in the provinces is pretty much paying their paycheck. I mean, I think never, I should... Never admit that. We should point out to our listeners that you and I are beaming in from what I would say is among the most productive provinces here. Two percent of the population in Southland of the whole country, and that produces uh, what is it? Fifteen percent done of our export I think receipts. It's, I think it's fourteen percent, and of course, a fair chunk of that is from the aluminium smelter. But let's say yes. agriculture, about ten percent. I mean, it is mm. a very, very verdant province, and uh, it's. it's Small population has high output, and yet um, we're probably the last on anyone's list for uh, any accolades. No. Um, we perhaps should build a wall. I, I suggest uh, not Wellington. Perhaps we'll build a <laughs> wall. Uh, at the, I think the Waitaki River would be a good boundary, and then just take it up to about Haast, and you know, just cut across the, the mountains to Haast Pass, and yes, yeah, south. We'll have that separate economy of the South. I'm not sure how 
Otago and Snelton used to be uh, one um, 100 and something years ago, but I, I'm not sure what happened, but uh, clearly there's some division between the two of us. Um, I'm happy to be part of something bigger if that's uh, how it works. I know that's all facetious, but because well, maybe we are, we just... national, and, and I am big on national sovereignty. Never, you talked about the ownership thing before. Uh, we talked about the United Nations. I am completely over the global the globalist agenda. Um, and I think uh, late last year on another show, we talked about how I came up uh, thinking when I heard uh, CNN's strap line was a world without borders. This is when I first got Sky TV, I think, um, way back. And I thought, oh, that sounds really, really good, a borderless world. It'll just, we'll all be nice together. Until I realized they meant genuinely a borderless world um, and national sovereignty didn't exist. Um, that's when I woke up. So I'm busy um, explaining to people that um, New Zealand for New Zealanders is, as New Zealanders, is vital. Um, we're not going to be answerable. And if people say, or to, a, to a, an international organisation. Unelected, uh, unaccounted international uh, yes. organisation. Yes. And so um, if you want that, it's not what I can support. And um, so we've got to stand tall on uh, pushing back on nationals. We need national sovereignty. And this, this idea of modern new age separatism is the last thing we need right now. Um, and we never needed it. We, we never needed it, but it's making our, um, our national sovereignty risky. I am in my mid-40s. It was nearly 30 years ago when um, my dad and the whole battalion left uh, for Somalia to serve under the United Nations a peacekeeping banner there. And, you know, you don't have a choice. You were given six weeks, learn to drive on the wrong side of the road, do this, that, get 10,000 injections that you need to head into Africa because you have been selected. You need to be deputed. And off they went, came back. 18, 20 months later, minus uh, seven men lost in an ambush. And by some weird coincidence, my brother, uh, who also joined the Indian Army, he was moved to Congo with his battalion in uh, the early years you know, of uh, this century. So between these, these two tenures, you can see my nat natural interest. When dad had gone, especially when dad had gone, there were no phone lines. There was one satellite phone that used to be rotated. So I think dad would be lucky if he could manage one 30-second phone call a month home. Very expensive one. So the only way I could get some information was reading, you know, reading haunting old libraries and newspapers and periodicals to find out what's happening, especially after these men came under fire and we lost a few guys. And then by the time when my brother went there, it was like, right, I need to start reading up on this again. So off and on in the last 30, 32 years nearly, I have been reading up about this organization and Africa, the United Nations currently has a food envoy who was the Rwandan Minister of Agriculture, Agnes Kalibata. And these small uh, producers of Africa, they have uh, sort of formed a blanket organization. I can't remember the name, but they have been protesting that we have been cut out. These big corporates like Bayer, Monsanto, 
Cargill have been destroying us. No one listens. And yet it is to these, uh, you know, puppets like Agnes Kalibata that are administered, Damien O'Connor, they go and pay homage. And they say that, you know, they are the ones we need to learn from them and we will follow you. Like whoever gave Damien O'Connor the right that he can go and sell us out to somebody, you know, we've never even heard of. Most of us have never even heard of. The biggest risk to um, food security in the world is domination by big players. Totally. And I'm big on um, the rights of the individual, um, the small farmer, the owner operator. Um, where there was a time when I thought oh, I'd love to be involved in developing big farming systems for myself and I'd be the principal. Um, what I know now, that's not something that I could um, support today. I think it's vital that we have lots of owner operators all doing the right thing effectively, producing the right stuff at, of their own volition. But, you know, this about 30 years ago, the buzzwords were benchmarking. And, um, and so you all went naked in public, basically, with your figures of uh, your production and stuff like that. I mean, if you want to be peas in a pod and controlled, continue down the track you're going. It's it's not for me. Um, but then I'm finished farming, effectively. So um, I just see the problems when you want to be treated like a machine producing gadgets. That's what you're going to be like if you don't try and retain your individuality. Now, talking about Rwanda farmers or African farmers, you know, they will be trying to advance themselves um, with some, no doubt, some aid from some countries. Um, but they do need to be wary. And I'd imagine they're being manipulated as well uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, there's some fertile ground that uh, certain countries might like to acquire. Uh, it's, it's not right. I mean, it's why are we having all these... Um, is, is it same thing, different day? Um, yeah. Same story, different day? I don't know, but you're not being reported in New Zealand's uh, media, which we should talk about, actually, um, I've just remembered, yeah. was the Netherlands protests over the um, buyout of farms to reduce nitrogen, 24 billion. Uh, at least they're getting, it's wrong, don't get me wrong, I'm not supporting that, but at least they're getting paid, unlike in New Zealand, where we're told we have to do X, Y, Z with no compensation. 3,000 uh, farms, supposedly, the yeah. Netherlands government is buying. Just horrible. And the farmers have to sign a declaration saying that they will not farm again. Whatever happened yeah. to individual rights? And these oh. are the same people who talk about human rights and equality and all yes. that nonsense. Yes, and, and just this week, um, I think you shared it with me today, the Belgian farmers protesting in Brussels. I mean, that is massive. I mean, Brussels is uh, you know, the home of the European Union, effectively, and uh, you know, the Hague has got... Oh, that might be the Hague, actually. That's, that's in Holland. Sorry, I may have my, my areas wrong. Um, but, you know, it's all that hotbed of um, basically what has been a protectionist um, sort of couple of countries but the farmers there are protesting in their thousands they make groundswells protests here look like a puppy and there's nothing in our news nothing in new zealand news at all i can tell you if there was suddenly a new variant in belgium we would hear on about it on every single media 
We, we would, we would. And um, we might even hear it out of Australian media because there's at least some decent um, mainstream media in Australia. Not much, but there's a bit. And, um, yeah, that's where I get my solace from uh, most nights. And, I mean, this is happening to farmers across the world. I have family, or my rather my husband has family in North America. He also has uh, family who have orchards in Canada. India, of course, I come from the farming belt of Punjab. We, the Indian farmers protested for a year and a half from mid of 2020 till end of 2021. Over 700 died. They blockaded one of the main highways in and out of Delhi for over a year. Half a million of them. Crickets in New Zealand. Crickets. The one day that I did here was uh, Indian Republic Day when the farmers did their own protest on tractors and they sort of broke into the cordons. And then it was like Indian farmers staging a US-like uh, insurrection. But after that, again, there was silence. Can, can you remind me what they were, what they were protesting about? What was the issue? Corporatization of agriculture. So right. the government in India, after the big famines of you know the, the 20th century, it began a food security program. And the government gives you a minimum support price there. And it has a food program wherein it buys stock of rice, paddy, sugarcane from farmers. And mm -hmm. the MSP, the minimum support price, is needed because otherwise we are talking of very, very small holdings, the average holding size being less than a hectare. The big boys, we already have Cargill and Monsanto in India. They would just swallow them and spit them out. So this was always available and was needed because it is subsistence agriculture and 60% of 1.4 billion people still earn their livelihood from agriculture. So under the guise of COVID, this was being done away with. And they were saying, we need to open our markets to everyone. And uh, we've already had the side effects of one green revolution in India that especially hit Punjab hard when they forced conversion of Punjab from millets, barley, wheat to paddy, which is, has dropped the water table in Punjab to less than to below 100 feet on an average water table. So these guys were protesting against this and COVID was used as a very convenient excuse. And they also said that any disputes in procurement or payment will not be handled by courts. There would be special, you know, bureaucrats appointed who would be dealing with this. And we are talking about some of, I mean, the person who was going to be given most of these contracts to procure from farmers instead of FCI, the Food Corporation of India, was is the world's 13th richest man. So can you imagine him pitting his might against an average guy with a holding size of one hectare? So they they have they ended that. The government ultimately relented. But now we I just saw last uh, week, Bill Gates was in India. He was meeting the Reserve Bank governor, a few big uh, industrialists, and talking about a new software to give farmers better data and access to, you know, very accurate spatial information and all of that. Now, keep in mind, these guys have managed to survive and have their form of sustainability, a full belly for millennia. 
but here we have a savior coming in. Yeah, so it comes back to um, my effective argument a moment or two ago about individuality and um, private property rights and um, the power of the owner operator. Uh, you know, I, there is efficiencies in scale, but around food security, I think you need a plethora of options, not a narrowed down set of options about food sources. You and, may think uh, I'm rather cynical if I say this, Don, but I I tread in both worlds. India, my roots are there. New Zealand is home. And I have also given up my Indian citizenship. But what takes brute force in India to do? Because there is really small land holdings and millions of farmers in stark contrast to New Zealand, where you have bigger land holdings and very small farmers. What needs brute force in India? in New Zealand can just be achieved by the stroke of a pen. We yeah. are so mired in legislation here. There's more than one ways to skin a cat. The exact same thing is happening. Just the means are different. Yes, I think you're right. And just the, the good experience, well, the bad experience with Sri Lanka in 2020 or 2021, uh, where um, basically the Sri Lankan farmers were told they couldn't use... Um, um, phosphates and nitrogens, nitrogen fertilizers, especially nitrogen, and their food production just collapsed like a stone, uh, fell like a stone. New Zealand seems to favor quite a few Sri Lankan experts now. Yeah. As you well, and I well know, there's a few yeah. floating around. <laughs> well, let's hope uh, the expertise um, is, um, is, is, what's the word, steamed, because uh, we don't need that that bad expertise coming to New Zealand. We um, have New Zealand climate project. change specialists coming from Sri Lanka now who have worked with the UN uh, food program in Sri Lanka now in New Zealand offering their expertise. Mm, it's boggles belief. It's smart, isn't it? And uh, they will have come with their credentials uh, on their CV um, stating how well they've been um, operating in, in their home country. So I don't know. We we go round in circles on this stuff. Uh, let's hope it can be corrected um, in our lifetime. But uh, you know, and I, I believe it will. It's what's happening is, I mean, why are you and I here? We hmm. don't see the media telling what is our reality. It seems to be following a narrative here, and it's been done for a long time. We have people on the very lucrative climate change bandwagon who are justifying their salaries. They're pretty lucrative salaries. And uh, we have the average, I mean, I just saw recently, one of our levy funded bodies has uh, appointed a new CEO and going into the credentials, because you mentioned Netherlands a moment ago. So their CEO has come from Netherlands and one of the big uh, consultancy firms. And I was looking through their work and one of the bodies of work this person has authored is about the future of alternative protein. And they conclude this report when they were working in this um, Deloitte, I think it was, by mm. saying that the world, especially the rich Western countries, need to cut their consumption of dairy and red meat by over 50%. So these are the people who are now heading are levy-funded industry advocacy bodies. Is it any surprise we are in the mess we are in? Or am I going slightly mad here? 
<laughs> the infiltration of traitors seems to be um, be rife is what you're effectively saying. Um, this lady that's coming to this job surely cannot do a job uh, that involves the red meat sector, in, oh, sorry, in the dairy sector, any justice. Um, how can they? Can they change their spots? No, they don't. Um, and so, you know, sadly, as much as I, I support the um, Dutch farmers and their, their issues at the moment, um, much of our problem does have some roots in the Netherlands and that area because of protectionist backgrounds. Um, yeah. But, you know, the, the carbon um, bank, effectively, uh, I read is Rabobank has a um, carbon yeah. bank. Um, set up so they're ready to trade um, CO2 I mean, it's never carbon it's CO2 they're talking about but they've made it look like we're going to trade something black yeah. and dirty um, and we're going to have this bank but it's it's really about CO2 so it's these things do emanate out of um, the European governments and uh, we seem to we seem to say we need to be part of it um, so we we bring these people here I mean yeah, look at there was a, a Fonterra CEO. Um, he imp imposed a velocity, what was it, V three or something, velocity yeah. um, paradigm on it on the business, and it went pretty averagely. You know, people come with bright ideas, not all of them work. I remember we had just come into New Zealand then. This was two thousand nine, and you know it was uh, heads down, bums up, and working hard because we were ex-bankers and starting at the very bottom of the dairy chain uh, milking and we remember thinking then when they said that Fonterra is buying uh, farms in China operating them and all and F-16 uh, calves and all and of course if you've got surplus and you want to make revenue yourself that's different but here it was being these farms were being bought by Fonterra and we were wondering it's almost akin to giving away trade secrets why would you create a whole factory for somebody who is actually buys the finished product from you? But I guess, you know, to a very simplistic mind, that's what it seemed like. Why would you even go there? And yet we went there, we turned back, got burned. Got burned. I don't think there's been many meat companies um, go to, to China and... Um, and survive either. So uh, you know, you know, property rights again are vital. And um, you know, the way I, you know, I've been to China and I've, I was really well treated by Chinese people, but they've got a different way of doing business. And if you don't do it their way, you come off second. Um, that seems to be the the way it is. Uh, and you know, I, I again, we we hunt as a pack rather than as individuals and we set ourselves up for all sorts of things i mean if imagine if we're all as individuals trading we would all be very competitively um, motivated you're currently, talking about free markets don and yeah, they don't seem Cur to exist anymore Cur currently we're not that competitive as individuals that's for sure that's for sure um you know we should look we, we're making it all sound really negative inside the farm gate um People that do farming, uh, whether it's horticulture or um, animal agriculture or cropping, they do it because they actually like it, most of them. Yes. They like it. It's not just uh, they've got to make a lot of money and and um, to hell with the environment. It's not like that. Um, we all want to make money. 
a fair amount of money and we want to make sure that we treat the environment right with the best knowledge that's available. Um, and so generally it should be a really positive industry to be in. You're at the genesis of this economy. You're at the genesis of, um, of a whole lot of things. You're actually assisting your local communities. You've got lots of investments going on, uh, people making money out of your investment. So it's all, not all bad, but it's disappointing to read today that the Federated Farmers Economic Confidence uh, Survey they've been doing since 2009, it was started when I was there, so they've done 27 of them. This latest survey is the worst in 27 six-monthly surveys. Wow. Now, it's hard to believe. Um, they say that, we are getting it, record prices for yes, our exports, commodities. The then why is that? The sentiment is negative. I don't get it. Um, they talk about, of course, regulations. And of course, okay. you ask the farmer, and this is the, the classic, the bureaucrats ask about, so how much does it cost the RMA inside your farm? How much does that cost uh, for, for this compliance? And of course, farmers can't exactly argue because they don't know. It's, it's a, these costs are applied through different ways that you can't actually define them clearly. Like, uh, unless you are getting a dairy inspection or something like that, you can't define a lot of these costs. But there's insidious creep coming through um, whatever you're purchasing or selling. And so the farmers have said uh, net 81.8% of farmer respondents expect economic conditions to deteriorate over the next 12 months. Now, I, you know, I'm perhaps not because I'm not actively farming, I'm not aware of the, um, of the tension. But, you know, farming did get uh, the New Zealand economy through the COVID lockdown period better than any other sector. And I thought um, it was doing okay. So to see this negative um, report is, is a bit surprising. But I'm saying that, you think of what's happened to the psyche of New Zealanders in the last two or three years. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of how you and I met uh, a bit online. Um, yeah. There's been a huge amount of anxiety caused uh, for, for something uh, that sounded really serious, really damaging, and was going to destroy uh, lives That's of awesome. many. And it turned out uh, worldwide that it wasn't a big deal. Now, it's sad for people that have lost people. I don't want to be um, understating that. But it's as equally as sad for the tension that was created on um, the family. that has been created in this society now. Yeah, and I was going to say, and for families that couldn't even go to their loved one's um, bedside as they were passing away, it was the worst form of dictatorship I think we'll ever suffer, and I hope we'll never go through it again. But... Um, is it any any um, surprise that we now have an, an anxious community and maybe regardless of the economic conditions, a lot of this negative sentiment in farming is um, caused by that anxiety? I yeah. don't know. I haven't, I haven't read the report it well enough. It just seems to me, Don, like we are hurtling from one crisis to another, whether true or made-up crises, I don't know. Time will tell, but we just seem to be. And when you leave people in this state of heightened tension and st stress and distrust, 
distress for years. That's what happens, you know. I don't think many of us are thinking logically anymore. Well, I imagine at the cut and thrust of um, in the dairy shed, you know, the profit and the loss and all that sort of thing, people can see their milk flow and they can see their cash flow and they can see all that sort of stuff. But there's a lot of other stuff that's underlying. I mean, I, I don't know about you, Jasper, but my circle of friends has changed. Uh, a lot of things have changed. And, um, you know, I'm pleased to say uh, from a lot of resistance within my own family, um, I'm because you know, they thought I was a bit crazy that I wouldn't uh, give in to coercion and bullying. Mm. And, and I'm not anti-vax. I have to say I'm not anti-vax. Um, but I was never going to fall into line with a narrative from dictators in Wellington. And the fact that it got inside my, um, my personal life and created a problem for me is, is annoying. But I can hold my head high. and. Um, I don't expect others to say, uh, you got it right, I got it wrong, Don. You know, you, know, you can gloat, you can fill your boots, you know, tell me I was an idiot. It's nothing to do with that. It's um, actually, it's about having my individuality retained. Absolutely. And, uh, Individual rights again, the right to yeah. choose whatever you think is best for you. And just like you, my circle of friends has changed. It has well, certainly enlarged. I was a very... I know it's hard to believe, but I was a very quiet, keeping to myself, retiring wallflower sort of a person, as my brother says, was just breathing, what have you done with her? But yeah, these last two years have certainly given me a lot of food for thought and uh, hmm. given me, I mean, I am grateful I've come across people like you, who I think we would have not uh, crossed paths in another lifetime, would we? Maybe not, maybe not. And, and you've become a counsellor against the odds created by MSM. I mean, uh -huh. the way the media tried to, uh, to make sure you didn't get to counsel um, shows your strength of um, personality, actually. Um, you know, I was chairman of a board when all this broke out and Zoom meetings were part of it. Um, luckily, I wasn't made uh, sort of an example of by the, my own company, but um, uh, it did feel a little strange that we were all isolated. We're all operating from Zoom. All directors were from home. The boardroom was empty. You never can run a board meeting like that. Yeah, well, you do need to see the color of people's eyes and their body language. And you do need to have that fellowship um, that's direct. But to have that all shut away from us was really odd. Very, and, uh, and when I look hard. back, when I look back, um, the company was the local electricity network manager. They did a great job. The senior staff there held it all together, and the board as well. We did a good job, but you know, it, it's did it need to happen like that? No, it was a massive overreach. You know, Don, we began this first segment today talking about disinformation and propaganda, and yeah. let's end it with this. So this week's Dairy News, page three, there's this article by Peter Burke. Uh, it says, Propaganda Blocking Climate Facts. Yes. And it talks about the fact that misinformation spread on social media is one of the inhibiting factors in getting across facts about climate change. 
This is the message from Waikato Dairy Farmer, and note Dairy NZ Climate Change Ambassador, <laughs> George Moss at last week's uh, Ag Climate Change Conference in Wellington. He told the nearly 300 attendees that some people rely entirely on social media for the information rather than relying on mainstream media. Good Lord. Why would some people do so, Don? <laughs> Why would they? And isn't it interesting? Why do we need climate change ambassadors? <laughs> um, and farmers are all around the country. And it's, it's, it's almost beyond belief that these people have been courted and allowed themselves to be courted by this quarter of the discussion. I mean, I know that it happened to me in the 80s when I was a young farmer doing well and um, had just sheep genetics that were making a big splash on the, in the district and my sheep were big and we had high production. And all of a sudden, um, they wanted to run field days here and, and I was going to be this, that next thing. And all of a sudden, you realise the control mechanism was going to come over the top of you and I just didn't want part of it. I, so I parked all that, stopped running farm forestry field days, which I used to have here. And now you've got these climate ambassadors. And on top of that, in rural magazines in the last month, we have seen so many editor, uh, feature pages full of sycophants for the, for the climate change narrative. You've seen some that aren't sycophants for it but, um, and, and put up the opposing view, but mostly it's pro falling into line with this climate change narrative. And I dare say um, I want to be part of a group that undermines that and gets the facts back on the table. And if that takes social media, if that takes reality check, radio, rural, unfiltered, then so be it. I'm there in spades. I mean, you and I know that we've got this concept called gas that we're about to start. I'm not sure when we'll release it fully, but that stands for the gigantic agrarian swindle which is methane taxing. Um, as one other guy said, it could be the guilty animal scam uh, as well. I don't care what it's called, actually, but we've got to stop the rot and we've got to stop these people being used as misinformation presenters as some of these um, farmers have been. They've been Amen they've to been that, suckered. They've been suckered. Absolutely. Amen to that. And... Uh... We hope you will join Don and me on the next segment. And thank you for watching. Any details that you want will be uploaded along with the show notes. So happy listening, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Peter Williams from 1 o'clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio. 